Well, good evening, uh, everybody. I'm delighted to be speaking to all of you at this uh, special BTOG webinar entitled Lung Cancer in the Time of COVID. My name is Sandra Popatz. I'm Professor of Thoracic Oncology at the Royal Marsden Hospital and Institute of Cancer Research. And we live in exceptional times. COVID has changed the way we treat, diagnose, stage, do everything with our lung cancer patients. And in these exceptional times, we've assembled for you exceptional people to discuss exactly where we are with COVID in thoracic malignancies and how we're going to take matters forward uh, for the rest of the year and perhaps the beginning of uh, 2021. Uh, being BTOG, we have assembled the whole MDT for you. We have expertise from respiratory medicine, from thoracic surgery, from radiotherapy, from medical oncology, from nursing, from pharmacy, and also experts in research. We're going to have a uh, question and answer session uh, amongst the panel here, and I'd encourage, encourage delegates to ask your own questions too to these assembled experts using the uh, question facility on the app that you're using. So without further ado, can I ask our specialists to introduce themselves? First of all, uh, Samrin. Hi, good evening, everybody. I'm Samrin Ahmed. I'm Professor in Medical Oncology at University Hospitals of Leicester. Um, I'm a BTOC committee member and uh, run quite a lot of clinical trials, and that's been important in the COVID era. Thank you. Uh, David. Hi, I'm David Baldwin. I'm a respiratory physician from Nottingham and um, interested in CT screening and diagnostic pathways and uh, chair the clinical expert group for lung cancer, um, which is uh, recently departed slightly from NHS England, but still well and truly in existence. Thank you. John. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is John Edwards. I'm a consultant thoracic surgeon in Sheffield. Um, I wear a number of hats. And the one that has probably got most relevance for this evening's um, webinar is that I chair the, um, the, steer, the thoracic steering committee for the COVID surge answer um, study, uh, which is recruiting with uh, tremendous success worldwide. So uh, hopefully we, we, uh, we may be able to get onto some of those. Thanks, John. Matthew. Hi, Matthew Hatton, um, also from Sheffield. I'm a clinical oncologist. Um, I think my other relevant disclosure is that I chair the NCRI uh, Lung Studies Group. Thank you, Matthew. Josie? Hi, I'm Josie Roberts, Macmillan Lung Cancer Nurse Specialist at Rotherham District General Hospital, uh, Cancer Centre is Sheffield as well, and I'm a committee member of Lung Cancer Nurse in UK. Thanks, Josie. And Rhiannon? Hi, I'm Rhiannon Walters-Davis. I'm the Principal Pharmacist at Bollinger Cancer Centre within Cardiff. I'm the lead lung cancer pharmacist there, as well as being a non-medical prescriber within lung cancer. And I'm also the policy and publication lead at the for the British Oncology Pharmacists Association, so BOPA. Well, thanks very much for um, all of you for giving up your time today. And let's get stuck right in. So the first question to David. Uh, respiratory medicine has really taken a huge toll with uh, in some places, the coronavirus surge, and in other places, the gradual gradient. Tell me what changes of respiratory physicians had to make in diagnosing and staging lung cancer? Yeah, well, I think it's um, a difficult question because I think the, um, the response in different parts of the country has been very different according to the sheer uh, volume of, of uh, COVID cases that uh, different centres have had. And um, speaking for the, for the very... Um, the, the very high volumes centres and the stories that I've heard there, people have, have really had to, at least for a very short period of time, almost completely shelve uh, the diagnostic and staging process. That's the that's one extreme. And then rapidly pick that back up again. Um, whereas in areas where the um, the social distancing obviously worked rather more quickly and the volume was, was uh, reduced to some extent, um, it, we, we've had a different approach. Um, what we've seen is that people have uh, not come up to the service. There have been a vastly reduced number of, uh, of attendances. It's down 20% of what it should be for the peak months in, in the COVID pandemic. And as a result of that, we found ourselves 
uh, on the one hand, dealing with some of the COVID work and on the other hand, uh, having more compact teams looking after all the lung cancer patients and trying where possible to keep the diagnostic and staging process going as far as possible. And that's reflected in some of the national documents that the CEG produced with the help of many of the people on the panel here. Um, but, but a wider group of people that certainly, um, certainly um, the, this has helped, I think, with some people to drive the continuation of services because what we can't do is to let our patients down at this time and so therefore there have been a number of sort of little tweaks to the national optimal pathway and the diagnostic process that we've recommended uh, particularly and notably at the early stages of the pandemic we felt that um, um, over-reliance on the uh, diagnostic staging through ebus was perhaps something we could maybe just um, reduce slightly by using PET and then really going on what the PET said rather than necessarily being purist about it and sampling it say in large nodes with no FDG uptake. Now that does come at a risk of missing uh, metastatic disease but we sort of accepted that and then in the next iteration of our document of course we've now relaxed that and said now resume the normal diagnostic process. Uh, whether we will need to reduce our accuracy of diagnosis and staging in the future will depend really very much on the pr local prevalence. I sincerely hope we don't have to. Thanks, uh, David. Uh, I'm going to bring John into the conversation. John, thoracic surgery has had to hugely change. Um, there are now surgical hubs, I understand. Uh, tell me about the surgical changes you've had to make and what's going to last. So I guess the the biggest issue that we had as um, the pandemic grew was not knowing what were the risks of surgery and it was it was clear from early reports that came out of China um, that the risk of, of operative mortality in a COVID positive patient was extremely high and uh, the first report was about 30 or so cases um, with a mortality rate of about 35 or so percent. That clearly set alarm bells ringing when we realised that the, the, the main reason of, of, of mortality was, was respiratory. So the, 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 effectively, the, 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 where we went from there was a, a need to understand more, um, but at the same time to consider very carefully on whom we operated. So in the early stages of the pandemic, we found ourselves not doing very much surgery at all, um, only the, the most urgent cases but with a great desire to learn more about the risks. And only when we have information about the risks did we feel that it was safe to try and, and re-expand services once again. So this is where the NIHR Global Health Global Surgery Unit in Birmingham came to the rescue by setting up the global project COVID Surge, um, which has now got about 34,000 cases of, of both COVID positive surgery and also cancer within it. Um, and, uh, and that has provided a lot of information which is beginning to come out. Um, and this, some of this information is, is confirming what we know about the risks, but also um, now beginning to show that actually the, the, the prevalence of, or the incidence of, of, of COVID in the surgical population is actually very small. So, so I think that's the first thing that, that that understanding, and we may go into that in greater detail, but that's the, the, the first aspect of trying to understand the risks of surgery. Um, but at the same time, the actual delivery of the service has changed um, tremendously in terms of the, um, the fact that initially the, the, uh, many of the, the cardiothoracic anaesthetists and, uh, and theatre team were redeployed to cover the expanded um, rotor within critical care. And, uh, and that had an impact on our, our service delivery. Um, and that is, has now, in the UK at least, has gradually recovered, although Elsewhere in the world, I'm, I'm well aware that the, the delivery of, of, of cancer surgery is, is still at a very low rate. Then beyond that, there's been the, the, the need to consider um, personal protective equipment in the, the operating theatre environment for, for staff, um, bearing in mind that the, the buzzword that, that we didn't know at the beginning of the year called an aerosol generating procedure, um, in that there's a lot of manoeuvres within thoracic surgery anaesthesia as well as surgery that are aerosol generating and, and that has had a big impact on, on the, uh, the way in which we work, the, the, the equipment that we wear 
and, and that has knocked on to to our um, the, frankly staff stamina to undertake as the same throughput that we had before, but also the staff numbers that are required to to conduct surgery safely. So that's that's had a had a big big impact, and uh, and, and again we we are just beginning to see uh, ourselves coming through the other side, but quite where this is going to lead us in the in the near future is is uh, still yet unknown. Thanks, uh, John. Um, a, a question to Samarine in terms of uh, systemic therapies. Nice put out some interim guidance uh, on changes. Maybe you could run through some of the highlights and just tell me personally from your, your viewpoint and reflecting what colleagues uh, think, what's been welcome, what's not been so welcome and what, what do you think might stay? So the general um, guidelines um, have suggested that treatment that we deliver should be less immunosuppressive. Um, should be less resource intensive. Um, it should have less hospital visits, so we're not exposing our patients um, to COVID-19 infection. Um, treatment at home as much as possible. Uh, GCSF has also been supported for any regimes that cause neutropenic sepsis beyond 10%. And these are all different thresholds that we were previously used to. So specifically, um, the interim guidance has allowed us to give pembrolizumab first line for any PDL1 um, positive patient. So previously we were only able to do that for over 50% um, PDL1 expresses. So to try and avoid chemotherapy in the first instance that's come in. Um, the schedules have changed. So uh, what we were used to previously three weekly pembrolizumab has now gone to six weekly. And that's really been adopted quite quickly throughout the cancer centers that I'm aware of. And certainly for us, that's been done very quickly. Um, adjuvant treatment um, following concurrent chemoradiotherapy with Devalumab, another immunotherapy, which was previously given um, two weekly has gone to four weekly. And that's been welcome with regards to capacity and um, patient visits to hospitals. So the other, um, I guess, the regime that in the UK we're not that used to is um, carboplatin paclitaxel. Um, that's been suggested to be adopted rather than day eight regimes like carboplatin um, gemcitabine regime. So again, you're getting less input into the hospital, less footfall, less exposure for the patients. Um, I think that's not a particularly popular um, schedule here, but appears to be the standard in the world. It's a very good regime, but does have hair loss, whereas um, the other regimes do not. What I have found personally, um, the most important interim COVID changes is first line osimertinib for EGFR mutation patients. And I found that very useful indeed. What I would have liked to see actually is um, introduction of second line osimertinib without a biopsy, because currently, you know, that's restricted, but also we've got difficulties in biopsying um, small lesions, even outside of COVID. Um, specifically now with COVID, you know, we're trying to reduce exposure to patients as well as to our staff members. And so we're trying to reduce um, EBUS biopsy as much as possible. And so, you know, the balance there to try and get a T790M mutation, which is required to give osimertinib second line, uh, is still there. So what I would like to see is that change, because actually bringing osimertinib first line hasn't really changed the chemotherapy for EGFR mutation patients for subsequent therapies. So in that way, it's been welcome that it's now first line, but I would like to see it coming in second line also. Um, personally, I found um, the, the, the carbotaxel hasn't really been an issue so much. Um, I haven't really adopted that as greatly because we, as medical oncologists, we tend to see mainly adenocarcinomas and we give um, carbapatin pemetrexid, which is again a Q21 regime anyway. So a lot of things have been welcome and I hope um, they will stay. Uh, a few things um, have not. GCSF introduction is very good for small cell lung cancer, and most of us were doing that anyway prior to COVID. So, uh, thanks, uh, Samarine. I'm going to uh, bring Rhiannon in uh, because uh, many of these uh, changes will have affected pharmacy uh, 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 as well. So, what what changes have pharmacy had uh, had to make because of the 
uh, coronavirus pandemic? And importantly, what changes will stay because they work and they're actually better practice? Yes, thanks, Amreen, for uh, running through those interim guidance for us. So, yes, I agree from pharmacy perspective, we did have to rapidly support the development of treatment algorithms, protocols, the e-prescribing that went along with it, the off-license and unlicensed indication, paperwork that needed to be completed. Um, we developed the prioritisation plans for SACT, uh, um, as with the NICE guidelines. We were involved in identifying the suitable patients for appropriate switches in formulations, you know, um, moving those to volume up patients from the two weekly to the four weekly, doing the counselling along with those, um, looking at dose reductions, flagging at times where we thought the pegfilgrastin would be useful in, um, you know, in those immunosuppressant groups. We were involved in ensuring there was sufficient medicines supply, really, you know, um, not just for SACT, but all the oral, all of the COVID stuff. Um, particularly with my role as procurement lead within the trust, you know, there was a lot of 2am checking the oxygen tank cylinders and that type of thing. Um, we also extended our NMP support within Valindra so uh, to allow medics to go back to um, frontline work. So either by additional sessions of NMPs, uh, pharmacists or to extend uh, NMP scopes of practice to widen. So there was clinical changes, but there was also of, um, as you imagine, a lot of operational changes that we needed to do. And as Samreen talked around, was, you know, trying to facilitate home care and, and um, use of alternative delivery methods for um, SAC delivery. So, you know, we use home care providers, so as well as reducing patient exposure, it also helped us be, give capacity in the nursing and pharmacy teams as well. We also, um, some trusts looked at using courier services to be able to deliver medicines. As at Valindra, we actually looked at, we did a drive-through service, basically. I think we did miss a trick with, we should have co-located co with the McDonald's and the Starbucks that's around the corner, if I'm honest. I think we missed a trick there. You know, there was lots of other things as well. We used COVID light sites as well. So we removed all of our face-to-face -face and day case administration from DGHs back into far, uh, back into the, the um, hospital site. We also looked at the medicines that we needed to use when we were looking at private hospitals and regional cancer hubs and mobile units. So there's a huge amount of work, really. Obviously, we had to work, our workforce had to adapt as well, move to seven-day working, set, uh, virtual meetings, looking at the um, how social distancing impacted it um, with regards to our dispensary, our aseptics, waiting room capacity, that type of thing. So altogether, there's a big change for pharmacy, if I'm honest. We quickly had to adapt, and that isn't something we're well known to do, if I'm honest. So all of the changes that we've seen I wouldn't say that any of these sizes fits all and each hospital will have to look at their departments and decide which models they're going to take forward although from a pharmacy perspective I think we're of the opinion we know there's no going back I think the changes that pharmacy had to do at the time demonstrated that pharmacy can make decisions quickly and pharmacists are able to be flexible with solutions you know, I never thought I'd be using Google Translate to work out whether Swedish propofol was actually real propofol that we could use. But strange times call for different things, don't they? Um, so what I think what we should really take as a pharmacy is that, you know, making sure that we can take forward our autonomy to make decisions quickly and implement a pace. So rather than any specific guidelines, I think what we need to take forward is that we can do this quickly, which isn't always thought of as pharmacy. Brilliant, thanks. And uh, I'll just bring in uh, Josie. Josie, um, CNSs have had huge uh, changes in in the way you work with um, the pandemic. Um, what's worked for you, and what do you think we you'll be taking forward? Well, I think certainly initially, many teams were redeployed. Um, certainly, we nationally and within the lung cancer nursing UK, people with A and E experience, people with um, ICU experience were redeployed there, or certainly helped out to support colleagues. Locally, we were helping with the chemotherapy regimes and helping intensive care colleagues supporting COVID patients through telephone and video consultations. So big changes, lots of it around communication as well, which I think has been absolutely critical in, in managing patients and their families and carers' expectations. I think one key thing I've uh, learned from this is I work back, I mean, a, a specialist palliative care background, work with the palliative care team 
and it really did emphasise the importance of having excellent palliative care and best supportive care for many, many of our patients. Especially we're seeing increase in patients admitted with advanced and metastatic disease. And I think the issues with not having visiting in hospitals put a lot of emphasis, a lot of strain and pressure on families um, going through any treatments. I think the other area is the telephone consultations have been absolutely essential. Um, and I think we really need to develop these much more into video consultations, um, having much more um, ele electronic forms of being able to communicate with all our patients and the families. Bear in mind that no visitors have been allowed and clinics, we do allow one relative at diagnostic clinics, but that's been extremely difficult for patients to, to take on board, I think. Thanks, Josie. And, and Matthew, uh, from the radiation uh, world, you guys uh, from your college have issued uh, guidance. guidance. Um, you know, what, what's worked for you and what do you think is here to stay uh, in radiation changes? I think, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that um, the stay-at-home message um, was extremely successful and um, numbers of patients coming through for radiotherapy did drop. I think each department has probably reacted um, slightly differently. Um, in Sheffield, we sort of closed our metastatic sabre program. Uh, we stopped inpatient radiotherapy treatment, and um, most importantly, all trial activity um, ceased. Um, and what we're trying to do, I think, going forward, is use radiotherapy in a way that um, minimises patients' risks to picking up coronavirus, and also, I think, keeps the pressure off the radiotherapy departments. Because one thing COVID will have done, I think, is reduced our capacity. I think estimates for our capacity in Sheffield is probably that we will be able to run at 80% in the sort of new normal um, compared to 100%. So going forward, it's been looking at regimes that essentially reduce the numbers of treatments given. So it reduces the, the numbers of fractionations. And the Royal College um, sort of led in this area. They produced, I think, guidance across the various tumour sites. Um, uh, Corinne Favourfrin is the sort of first author of the document for lung cancer. Um, I think the important thing to say about this is that we've been able to review the evidence and the evidence for reducing fractionations is often quite modest. We're looking at phase one and phase two trials. So I think if we are going to adopt these shorter fractionations, we need to do it carefully. Each department will need to set it up um, and pay, I think, great attention to their techniques and try and employ as many modern radiotherapy techniques as they can. Um, and also, I think it's going to be very important to collect data, to audit outcomes, toxicities from these new um, fractionations. So I think a number are here to stay, um, uh, certainly in the medium term, because as I say, I think the ongoing pressure on service will be there uh, through this year and I suspect well into next year. Thanks, uh, uh, Matthew. Um, question for uh, David. Um, uh, you know, you and I guess John are leading the um, um, push for patients in the diagnostic and staging part of the uh, patient journey. So um, the NHS may or may not have diagnostic hubs. I mean, that's the, the, the rumour on the rumour mill. Um, will it work? Can it work? Uh, what are your thoughts, David? So uh, I think this is a generic thought, uh, really. It's about the importance of keeping people that are COVID positive away from the cancer services whilst they recover, um, because we know that people um, don't do well if they have COVID. That, that, is, that is a bottom, bottom line. What we're not clear about, though, is, is whether they do any worse than they would do normally if they have COVID, because we have this and it's interesting to hear what Samarin was saying about the nice interim guidance um, that a lot of that was based on just two papers from the from China of very small numbers of patients and since then there have been two papers published which have got 10 times or more the number of patients in them showing that actually there doesn't seem to be any any extra risk from receiving systemic treatment it's just the fact that you have comorbidities and increasing age all the usual risk predict predictive factors that we know are present in COVID in general seem to apply to, to lung cancer patients as, and other cancer patients as well. And I think the Lee paper, which is the Birmingham study, I think that John was referring to, had 100 um, or 90 uh, lung cancer patients within it. So, you know, better numbers than the 28 that were in one of the China papers. 
Um, and, it, and the answer to the question about, about diagnostic hubs, the crucial thing is how well we can keep them green, if you like. And that is one of the reasons why some of the latest guidance from the CEG about how to manage referrals for cancer recommends testing them before they're referred, even when they're, they're the sort of patients that are quite likely to have lung cancer rather than COVID. And it's, a, it's really designed to try and reduce the risk of cross-infection. And I think a lot of the uh, measures that we need to put in place now need to be focusing on cross-infection prevention rather than necessarily worrying too much about the immunosuppressive aspects. And, and another little signal for that is the fact that dexamethasone in more severe patients um, improves the outcome, the mortality outcomes from COVID. And that must be operating on the inflammatory components of COVID. It's not preventing virus attachment. Um, it, remdesivir is, is, is a drug which, which does that. And that's generally more effective in the sort of more early stage of the disease as you'd expect. So I think we need to focus our future management, which may include the RDCs, but certainly on green areas where we absolutely reduce the chance of cross-infection for as much as possible. And that way we should be able to proceed in a safe environment for patients and ourselves and actually get the best outcomes. Thanks, um, David. John, do you want to comment on that? So I think the, the interesting data coming from the, so the COVID surge study are, um, are still in evolution. Um, what I'm just about to say is subudice, so it's not, not in the public domain yet. But if we look at the, the just over 800 patients who have had cancer surgery um, that have got 30-day outcomes and from, from that study, and uh, what we know is that the background surgical mortality from the Society for Cardiothoracic Surgeries audits and the Lung Cancer Consultant Outcomes Project um, is that the regular mortality for lung cancer surgery is just under 2%. So when we look at the, the 800 or so UK patients, selecting those ones um, that are in the, in the COVID surge study, um, we see that the, the overall mortality is 2.3%. And if we then split that into those that are COVID positive and COVID negative, the, the 34 COVID positive cases had a 30-day had a a mortality of 35%, whereas the COVID negative patients were just 0.95. That 0.5 is, is, is quite interesting because that suggests that the patients that don't get COVID are lower risk than average. And therefore, the understanding of the, the risk um, of these patients in terms of the regular surgical risk is gonna be very important. So if you think about excess mortality as a result of the COVID pandemic, um, it goes from just under two to 2.3%. So there's maybe, a, maybe three in a thousand patients um, that, that are, are succumbing to, 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 to operative mortality as a result of COVID. So I think we need to put it into context. And thankfully, the, the fact that we've now got about 1,800 patients with lung cancer in COVID surge, all with collection of risk stratification data, will allow us to look very carefully at the, the risk of the patients that develop COVID and die versus the risk of the, the patients that survive. And so that's gonna be very interesting to see. So it looks as if it may well be that some of the patients that succumb to COVID post-op are those that are likely to, to be higher risk in any case. Thanks, John. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we need to start thinking about is risk. So should all patients that are surgical candidates still get surgery or should actually they be seeing a radiation oncologist for SABRE? So I'll have your brief thoughts on that and then ask Matt afterwards. I think it comes down to our understanding of, of risk. And, uh, and now we have the knowledge um, that the, the risks in a, in a patient who has been shielded and is tested negative with our current protocols beforehand is, is very low of, of developing COVID. I think we can go more or less back to business as normal. Um, I, I, I don't yet have the data from all UK units, um, but we haven't seen COVID in a lung cancer surgery patient for over three months. And, uh, and I think if we, if we continue to, to exercise a high standard of, of screening and 
uh, and, and COVID minimization, uh, I think we can continue business as normal um, in terms of case selection. There are still issues in terms of service delivery, but in terms of case selection, I think we can continue as normal. I'll bring Matt, uh, Matthew in uh, for your comments about uh, Sabre and patient selection. Matthew. I think I'd largely agree with John. I think patient selection should be really business as usual. I think there are, I suppose, over the coming months, likely to be areas where COVID perhaps um, re-emerges and you may have to add that into your sort of risk factor calculations. But essentially, I think any patient who has a higher than average risk for surgery probably ought to be seeing uh, a radiation oncologist to discuss Sabre as an alternative treatment. And I'm not sure that situation is any different now to what it was sort of at the end of last year. So uh, one question um, that, that's come in is about um, pre-procedure testing of COVID. Now, the surgeons have done this very nicely. Uh, patients are shielding. They have to test uh, beforehand, be negative before they can have their procedure. Uh, Samreen, should um, patients undergoing systemic chemo which we know is myelosuppressive, may not mix well with COVID, um, also be undergoing regular COVID testing. Don't you feel hard done by for your patients because they're not? Yeah, completely. I mean, there, there is a national guidance um, document still waiting to be ratified coming through. And um, having my ACP hat on, I have had sight of this. And there's views are divided um, in the country with regard to their capacity of testing, because we're not talking about a small volume here, as you can imagine, for big centres where, you know, throughput is 90 patients having sacked IV only per day. So if you bring in the orals, there's probably double that easily. Um, my personal feeling is that we should be testing everybody. Just because we don't have capacity doesn't mean the principle should fail. And um, certainly in, in the private sector at the moment, if I see a patient there, I'm being tested every week. Patients are all being pre-screened before they have treatment for, for the local private hospitals here. I'm a, I'm a quite a strong advocate of supporting that for the NHS patients. And at least we need to start with the new patients, if nothing else, um, if we can then introduce it slowly into our existing um, patient caseload, that would be ideal. But again, it does mean that the actual dynamics of that and the pathways just need to be streamlined a little bit because it means that the patients have to come in um, 48 or 72 hours earlier from their actual treatment, which means another extra football into the hospital and contact with other people, puts them at slightly a higher risk. And then of course, who's going to do that checking of the results before they're given treatment? Because most of um, us clinicians are doing virtual follow-up anyway. So, you know, I, I, even though I'm a strong advocate of testing for our cancer patients, I feel it just needs a little bit of work with regards to capacity testing, what the pathway should be, you know, what, what, how are we going to actually implement the test results and act upon them before we give them their systemic treatment. Thank you. I'll bring Josie in because, uh, you know, I guess the CNSs have been supporting our patients right the way through this difficult uh, period. It must be, you know, really difficult for, for patients who are undergoing a procedure, having to shield, um, having to COVID test. How have you managed to support patients through this journey, Josie? Absolutely. I think there's been such a big fear factor throughout for all patients. And as I've said, for their relatives and their carers, uh, for patients coming through investigations, we've been doing some of the actual uh, swabs, the testing. I think patients appreciate this. I think they want you know, proof that they, they have been tested. Um, certainly for any biopsies, CT, CT biopsies, any further treatment, we've had to have the testing in place and contacting them as well with results where necessary. Um, and I, I think patients have all accepted this new sort of reality. They're scared to come into hospitals so they can have remote drive-through testing. Um, I think we just need to minimise the amount of time they do have to visit the hospital face-to-face. -face. But equally, they need to appreciate the risks involved as well. 
So there's been a big impact, on, I think, on all lung CNSs in supporting the people throughout this. And Josie, you know, obviously for uh, patients that are admitted, um, visitors aren't allowed. Uh, that doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon, or does it? And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think presently it's still a good thing. We've certainly minimised the visiting. Um, you are allowed one relative, one relative, same relative throughout for end of life care. Um, and I think we have to continue that because we can't we can't say a lung cancer patient or a cancer patient can have a relative and other patients can't. So I do think that's important. But I do think the emphasis on video consultations and the use of IT technology has been imperative in, in supporting this and constantly you know, informing your patients of what's happening. The communication aspect is just essential throughout. And I think most of that has fallen obviously on the CNS. Thanks, Josie. And, um, you know, part of our new way of working is um, COVID testing patients before procedures, as we've discussed. David, um, question to you that's, that's come in. The BTS have recommended that patients that are having a bronchoscopy or uh, EBUS um, who have a COVID positive swab have the procedure delayed by 28 days. Is, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, because on the one hand, we're trying to get people through the system as fast as possible. And on the other hand, we are slowing things down, even when they're asymptomatic. We know, for example, that 40% of people are asymptomatic or perhaps will never get any symptoms. Is that an own goal? I don't think so. I mean, I think that there is a qualification in that document about people that are very urgent patients. So um, this is, as we've said, it's a relatively few people. Um, as the prevalence increases, the, the prevalence of people that are at risk of dying increases as well. So as the prevalence falls, fewer people have positive swabs and therefore fewer people will be affected by this. But at the time of writing that document, we took advice from uh, members of NERVTAG and um, we felt because this is, was a procedure that was something that could be delayed by that amount of time, then the 28 days was, was the best approach, particularly as these people would have been in contact with others as well. So um, um, the, the, you know, the, the standard shielding time, of course, is 14 days, but not everyone. In fact, the, the, that, that, is, that is a sort of um, an adjustment based on what's pragmatic as opposed to what is uh, to ensure the patient is completely clear of being infective. The infectivity really goes completely at around about day 21, uh, and even beyond that, there's some evidence that people can still be infective. So that was why we went for 28 days. You could say that that could be modified now to 14 because of all the other uh, evidence that or, or all the other guidance there. But we've not elected to do that as the prevalence is now dropping and this is not going to affect very many people. Thanks, uh, uh, David. With um, for, the, for the panel, with um, uh, COVID testing occurring in so many different ways, some people are having it done in the community. Uh, some people are having it done in, in hospital. Um, you know, how are these COVID negative tests being signed off? So, for example, if you're coming in for a procedure with John, and John, I'm going to ask you this question. Um, if you're coming in for a procedure with John, whose responsibility is it to um, ensure that the patient is COVID negative? And can the patient just not simply schedule a COVID test, you know, at their convenient time point using the uh, government mobile unit, for example, rather than your specific COVID test, John? So I'm not an expert on, on, uh, on, on COVID testing and what can be available where, but I understand that there are pillars um, and I suspect that, that David might be able to tell me more about pillar two than, uh, than I know. Um, but um, certainly from a, a pre-operative assessment clinic point of view, we provide the testing because I guess we want a quality assured test that is, it has, has been through our system. Um, and, uh, and we're also doing testing in our institution where by, by post. So we are, um, as part of the, the, the pre-operative process, the patients are instructed to shield for 14 days and we know that that is difficult particularly if they're elderly and dependent um, and three days pre-op they perform their own test which I accept is is uh, it may have quality issues 
um, which is sent back by, by post and is rapidly analysed so that we have a, a pre-operative hospital uh, performed test done um, immediately before surgery. And obviously we, we would not be operating on anyone who is positive. Um, have we yet had a positive test? I don't think so in our institution. Um, and as I said, you know, we, we, we haven't had a positive patient for three months. But I know that in, in other parts of the country and there I say other parts of the world, that there are different experiences. Thanks, John. Um, one of the most controversial pieces of the various guidelines that have been published in the UK was to consider omitting adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, now, uh, I can understand why that was said, because presumably of the increased risk versus the uh, presumed uh, minimum survival advantage, but others have argued that this is curative treatment we're talking about, not palliative treatment. Uh, Samarine, can I uh, bring you into this and ask your thoughts on that area of controversy? So I treat breast cancer as well as lung cancer. So there's a lot of adjuvant treatment given in breast cancer. For lung cancer, I do think the adjuvant chemotherapy is fairly high risk, even without the pandemic of uh, with that without the pandemic going on in the background. I just think you do have to stratify your patients very carefully. So as John um, alluded to in terms of surgical workup and um, the risks for patients who have comorbidities is still there, if not heightened. So it is those people that you would normally not give chemotherapy to that I would still omit. Um, those people who we feel would be able to tolerate um, treatment well um, and not have infection. I would say the, you know, the recurrence risk for higher rate, a higher stage lung cancers is high. And so um, I, I would say that adjuvant chemotherapy, again, has to be assessed with regards to its risk. And the shielding message for our patients has, you know, been really very well observed. And we've all found that we've had less football into the um, oncology units. And actually, the normal sort of neutropenic sepsis rates are actually much lower. And that's because patients are observing shielding very strictly. Um, so I, I think under that environment, it is able, you are, one is able, clinicians are able to deliver chemotherapy, whether it's adjuvant or palliative in a safe environment. Uh, thanks. And related to that, I'll bring Rhiannon into the uh, conversation. So um, when patients are having this systemic therapy with this strange new world of uh, digital conversations and restricted uh, visitors, how can we ensure patient safety and compliance in taking their treatments when it's not intra intravenous? How do we know they're actually going to safely take the complex regime that uh, uh, Samarine has prescribed, for example, or you've prescribed, for example, Rhiannon? Yeah, there's obviously a concern from our perspective that obviously the the traditional touch point where we do get to counsel patients, where we hand over the medicines, you know, particularly if we're using, you know, home care delivery, careers, drive through, there's a loss of that. So we just may, need to make sure there's alternative mechanisms where patients can access that. We've got an absolutely great um, education service at Valinja that's run by our technicians, actually, so not pharmacists. And they just try to migrate their current service into a counsel online counselling service. So, you know, there's a like a digital walking now clinic where patients can ring up and ask. We also give them information when, um, along with all the SACT information, they also get a please call this number. You can book in for a counselling session online. And it's probably the right time really to have a discussion really with pharma about how we um, move from the traditional patient information leaflets that are, you know, paper based to actually making a co-produced virtual content that we could share with patients online and then adapt per trust as well. So, you know, there's lots of things that we can take on um, using virtual platforms, but we also need to bear in mind there are some patients where virtual platforms aren't 
the answer to everything. You know, we do have some patients. You know, I had a patient who was hard of hearing, came into clinic because we thought that was the easiest way, but actually she can only lip breathe. So me wearing a mask wasn't really helping the situation. So there's cohorts of patients that we need to make sure that we've got a wraparound for as well that isn't just reliant on, um, you know, moving everything to virtual platforms, really. So there's work to do there, I think. Thanks very much. Um, I'm just going to uh, ask uh, Matt a question. One of the things that uh, uh, one of the questions that's come in, a theme of the questions that's coming in, is the changes in our treatments that we're doing, be they radiation changes or systemic therapy changes. Have we noticed increasing toxicities with this? Because you know you pointed out that the hyperfractionated regimes really don't have that strong data um, to support them. So. You know, are you noticing more toxicities with your hyperfractionated regimes than you would have been doing otherwise? And what mechanisms have we got placed in the UK to monitor the safety and perhaps effectiveness of these novel regimes? Matthew? Um, I mean, I think I can only, I suppose, speak from personal anecdotal experience. Um, certainly, I've been using some of these um, sort of hyperfractionated regimes. Um, for example, the concurrent chemoradiotherapy regime using a sort of four week radiotherapy fractionation as opposed to the normal six week. And my sort of anecdotal experience is that has produced more in the way of side effects. It has proved a little more toxic. Um, so I think there is a risk there. Um, how we capture and monitor that risk, I think is difficult. I think um, the radiotherapy we do have set up through the University of Manchester, a sort of radiotherapy service evaluation so an online um, assessment where we're trying to capture all patients treated with these new regimes and capture some sort of fairly basic, I suppose, um, demographic data and uh, toxicity data. Um, but it's going to be difficult, I think, um, to really be able to capture toxicity data. You need to be running things as they do in clinical trials, and that does take resource. So if we're going to do this, it's very much now down to the individuals, the individual clinicians who are looking after the patients to be able to capture and record data, I suppose at first locally, but then hopefully feeding it into these larger databases. Thank you. And I'm going to bring Samreen into, into the um, uh, conversation. Samreen, <clears throat> with checkpoint inhibitors, we're now using um, uh, increased frequency with higher doses. So, for example, six weekly pembrolizumab, one monthly durvalumab. Um, one monthly atezolizumab, for example. Uh, now, much of these changes have been done on PK modeling, um, not necessarily uh, in clinical trials. There are some anecdotes which are st starting to filter up to my headquarters about perhaps increased toxicities. Is this just anecdotes or is this a, a general uh, feeling that you're getting that increased doses uh, have increased toxicity with checkpoint inhibitors or is this just you know, people not understanding that dose does not increase uh, related to checkpoint inhibit uh, toxicities with checkpoint inhibitors. Samri. Uh, you read my mind. I was just thinking about that myself. And um, actually, when the pandemic hit, I was actually worried, is it going to be the checkpoint inhibitor patients who are going to be more at risk of COVID complications rather than our immunosuppressed chemotherapy patients? Because, I mean, my understanding of it is this inflammatory response uh, that causes all the complications. So, you know, I was in two minds. We are trying to divert all these um, chemotherapy patients to checkpoint uh, inhibitor therapy, and are they going to be just as much at risk? And then going to your second point about giving bigger amount of drug less frequently, I don't know. I'm, I, we're auditing it, certainly. I mean, we, um, uh, as we generally do in Leicester, we take on um, these anything that reduces our capacity, uh, increases our capacity, reduces football. We take that on quite early, and we actually switch to um, pembrolizumab six weekly quite early on, way before the pandemic hit. And so, we, we're in the uh, process of auditing it. I can't, you know, anecdotally, I'm not seeing that much more toxicity, but, you know, I'm very happy to be corrected if others around the country are. I am, um, I guess these patients, I, I don't start them off immediately on six weekly, I have to say. I give them three weekly or two weekly and then um, uh, migrate them over to a longer regime. 
So it may be just the cumulative toxicity that they were going to get anyway, and we think it's because of the larger dosing less frequently, but they may get it anyway. So I think we, it's an area of research and audit that we probably need to do all around the country in all our centres once as we change practice. Thank you. Um, a question that's come in from uh, the audience, so David, uh, I, th I think it's a good one for you to answer, David, is about the, the, the status of CT screening. You know, we were leading the world, I would like to say, uh, in implementation of uh, uh, screening, very high uptake in the pilots, and that's down to a lot of the great work uh, from many people in the UK. Uh, and it, it got shut down with, with COVID. David, is CT screening going to come back to the UK? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, the um, well, I mean, all the cancer screening programs were shut down. So you know, ac across pretty much the world. And um, the the great thing is that whilst the, we've been shut down, there have been a number of other countries that have now uh, suggested that we should go ahead. They should go ahead with screening. Significantly, Germany have. Uh, given the green light to going, going ahead with uh, targeted uh, screening. So it'll just provide a little bit more impetus to, to carry on. Um, the issue at the moment, of course, is the uh, problem with backlog, which a lot of the uh, targeted lung health check uh, centres are citing as a reason not to start CT screening. But in a sense, the fact that they, there was an intention to start in any case, or they'd already started, um, should probably be classified as some of the backlog because it is intentional work that was was to be done. So we're trying to sort of make that argument. The um, there are many set many of the targeted lung health check programs are intending to start. Some of them have already made plans to begin this year uh, in a limited way, uh, and we have uh, significantly a number of the research studies that have that have restarted. So YLST uh, started about three uh, weeks ago, and then our um, going to do their uh, second uh, um, site uh, just next week, I think. Uh, the Manchester um, rollout is also restarting. And as far as I'm aware, the Liverpool uh, uh, pilot will also restart as well. So it is re restarting. Inevitably, it's been delayed. Um, and during that time, we're, we're losing a bit of ground. But I think also the, um, the process of slow implementation to what is the ideal, and that is a national program that has equal standing with the other cancer screening programs, is is still on on the way. So it's just a question of of keeping going, doing what we can to make sure that the cross infection issues are mitigated, uh, and try to get people uh, back into the into the process of early diagnosis awareness and and, and screening eventually. Thanks, David. Um, one of the big changes that we've uh, had to make with the coronavirus pandemic is the switch to telemedicine. Uh, and all of us have had to come to grips with the new technology, be it by video, by phone, um, by um, smoke messages. Uh, so have we got any data uh, in the UK that uh, patients are satisfied with their experience. And I guess the person that might know best is the lung CNS. So Josie, what's your, what's your feedback from patients about virtual consultations? You know, do they work? And I'm really thinking about, you know, critical consultations, you know, for example, people being told they've got cancer or their disease is progressing, you know, should we be doing these by uh, telemedicine, Josie? I personally don't think any breaking bad news clinics should be done remotely. I think we've, we still need that human face-to-face -face clinic um, scenario. I think that really is important. And I think the feedback we've had from patients where it's worked is more the routine follow-up, um, checking, proactively checking how people are coping, certainly along with, the, with any exact treatments. But I think when you're giving such, um, such difficult news that then a person has to pass on to their family and their relatives. It's essential that we keep face-to-face -face clinics. And we've certainly tried to do that as much um, as, as possible. I think that's important. But there is certainly a place for virtual um, virtual clinics and it's, it's helped. And I think everyone's had to adapt to that and are taking it on board. And certainly many of our elderly patients, you know, it's amazing how, how they can FaceTime, how they can use technology. And I think it's a real positive for moving that forward. 
certainly when we're looking at EHNAs, when we're looking at anything done electronically, you know, a lot of the criticism was, oh, people don't want that, they haven't got access. Actually, yes, they have. And it's been proved in many, many areas as well. Um, I'm not aware of anyone who has objected to telephone calls, but when they've wanted to have a face-to-face -face consultation, we accommodate that. And I, th I really think we need to continue looking at it as, as personalised medicine. It, it's just as important. We have to treat everyone as an individual in what they what they want. Some people can handle things remotely, many others can't. I mean, the, the, the contrary is that some patients, you know, prefer having bad news at home. They're in their home environment, they're with their family, more family than they would bring in. So, um, uh, you know, is it, is it easy to tell what, what patients want? Do you get a feel as the, the CNS when you're supporting patients through the journey? I think that's what we need to be addressing as soon as possible. Uh, part of our role is, along with the um, optimal lung cancer pathway, is ringing patients at that point of abnormal x-ray or actually intercepting them in radiology. And you do get a feel for, what, for what's needed there. Um, but I, I think, again, it's, it's personalising that, asking the question, you know, before we get to that point, would you be happy with a remote uh, call? And if they're travelling distance, then certainly many people will. But I thought, I can't, I don't think we should make that the rule. I think we have to have exceptions to that and we need to actually determine what that patient wants as part of that holistic assessment when they first arrive. I think we need to remember these patients are scared. They're scared of even coming anywhere near the hospital. That's why the footfall has been so low. Um, and that will continue, I think, for, for a while. But if they don't understand right at the beginning what the diagnosis is, what it entails, what the treatments may be, we've got a very misunderstood patient right at the beginning. It will just cause problems, I'm sure, much later down the line. Thanks. And, and John, you know, in your field, you really have to get a good feel of the patient before you take them on surgically. How's telemedicine worked in surgery? So I think that's a, a very interesting point. Um, I've heard colleagues seeing patients in clinic at the new patient consultation where the patient hasn't actually seen a doctor. Um, and that, that is an interesting concept. Um, and I think the, 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 the word there is seen. Um, you know, we're often asked in NDTs whether we would eyeball the patient. And, and I think you, even without knowing the, uh, the, the, the physiology, the, the walk from the corridor to the chair in the consulting room tells the surgeon quite a lot. Um, and I would think that probably eight to nine times out of 10, you can judge whether a patient is fit on the basis of that. What we have been doing is tele um, teleclinics, um, telephone clinics, but we haven't, I haven't personally had experience of video clinics. Um, and whether or not a video clinic allows the same eyeball assessment um, is, as far as I'm aware, unknown. It will be very interesting to see uh, data. I mean, we, we all like data, and to w whether there are, will be any data about the the safety and efficacy of different types of telemedicine, uh, I don't know. But my, my personal feeling and, and that of my immediate colleagues is, is that, that we are continuing to, uh, to insist on a face-to-face -face consultation for the lung resection patients. Thank you. And um, David, uh, perhaps a question to you. The government have been very effective in saying, if you've got a cough, stay at home. But of course, a cough is exactly what many of our patients have. So we've got a big problem in getting patients diagnosed, a backlog. How do we solve this in the UK? Well, um, I think when, when we continue on with the endemic phase, if the message goes out again to uh, not uh, come to hospital, not come to your GP, stay at home if you've got a cough, all of those sort of things, then it will have the same disastrous effect that it's having at the moment or and has had at the moment. And we have to get it. We have to improve. I mean, it's difficult. You know, it's the first time this has ever, ever happened. Very, very difficult to criticise anyone, but we can certainly do it better next time. And the government will have to do have to put out a mixed message. They will have to make it clear when they say you've got a cough, stay at home. They'll have to make it clear to patients that if you might have lung cancer, or, or any other cancer really, but lung cancer is the key one because it has overlapping symptoms, then um, they must put that message out at the same time to make it clear, as clear as it can be to patients. 
what, as you know, Sanjay, what we've done as the CEG was we proof it, we produced a document called uh, Differentiating the C's COVID versus Cancer. And what that does is it tries to um, allow the primary care people who will be triaging patients once they've contacted them to um, classify patients into people that are very likely to have lung cancer, no features of COVID, uh, people that are very likely to have COVID, no features very much of lung cancer, and then those all important group in the in the middle. And then it suggests some relatively straightforward approaches to each of those categories, uh, with the cancer patients just getting a swab and then being referred on the two-week wait. The intermediate people um, basically self-isolating for 14 days to see whether they develop COVID or not, and having a swab and then being referred if they still have the, the symptoms in other words, they're more likely to have lung cancer at that stage. Risk assessment being performed as well, of course, for lung cancer. And then the people that have classic COVID symptoms, well, just treated according to COVID guidance. And then if they still have symptoms that have persisted and therefore they go into the intermediate group, then they're then referred on for, 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 for testing for cancer. Uh, and, and there's, there's, you know, there's difficulty with uptake of this guidance because it's not national guidance. It is the first guidance that I've been aware that it's really tried to link the differentiation of symptoms with concrete action. Um, there are national guidance documents available on uh, diagnosis of cancer in the COVID era, era, but they don't go quite as far as saying, you know, do this if you get this, this categorization. Um, so I just hope that will get out and, and people will start to use it. Uh, David, thank you very much for that. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. We could easily carry on for another hour with the questions that are coming through. So much to discuss. I'd like very much to thank the audience for their attention, for their questions. Uh, very much to li like to thank our Dream MDT, our experts uh, who have taken time out uh, to give, uh, give us their tuppany bits worth of opinion. Uh, on how we should be um, treating our patients, diagnosing, staging, and moving uh, forward. I'd very much like to thank the uh, BTOG executive for their logistics, as well as the production teams. And a reminder to the delegates, please complete your feedback. This is a new experience for BTOG, so we very much do want your feedback uh, in terms of this particular webinar and your thoughts and suggestions for what you'd like to see uh, moving forward. Speaking of that, moving forward, the next webinar that we are hosting uh, as part of our BTOG webinar series is on Thursday, the 13th of August at 17.30. So mark it in your diary now. We will be discussing the World Lung Cancer 20 virtual presidential uh, symposium abstract session. There will be key potentially practice changing abstracts presented. We want to disseminate that information and we want to put it into UK context. Does it really matter to the UK or is it just airy fairy uh, hoi polloi? So we'll be discussing that on the uh, 13th of August. Be there and thank, uh, thank you everyone for all of your attention. Goodbye. <laughs>